0: loved ones. I pray everybody's well. I wish you a happy new year, 2019. Um, This episode is with Kabir Helminski. Uh, He is a returning guest. We had him a year or so ago. Um, Kabir is a Mevlevi Sheikh. He is someone who's a Sheikh in the Order founded by Maulana Rumi. And he was a, Kabir was a student of Suleiman Dede, who was a Uh, Sheikh from Turkey who came to America probably, I don't know, in the 70s or 80s, and um, mashallah. So, and I've had the uh, blessing of spending some time with Kabir, and uh, they were kind enough to invite me to take part and to uh, recite and to offer some reflections at their uh, Threshold Society retreat in California, which they do every year, and um, yeah, mashallah. They are, uh, him and his wife, Camille, are doing some great work and have been for for many decades. And you'll see we get into this, but one thing that that I really uh, think about Kabir is he's been thinking about the translation. So he's a translator of Maulana Rumi, and he's uh, one of the people who has helped translate Rumi's poetry and make it popular in the West. But he's also more generally thinking about the translation of the tradition of Islam and particularly Sufism within that into a Western context, and he also is a uh, you know has a master's in psychology, so he's thinking about these things vis-a-vis Western people's psychology and what will um, how to translate such that it can speak to the people that it's being translated into. Because as you know, anyone who's tried to translate from one language to another, it's not just about finding a word that approximates it, but actually you have to translate between psychologies. You have to think about the the, the mindset and the worldview um, and the way that language operates in a whole different context. So anyway, I think he does that um, He's one of those kind of thought leaders who's been on the front lines with that for for many decades. And that brings us to his recent book, which is called Holistic Islam. And this is a book that um, we talk about in this podcast. And I would recommend everybody to check it out. It's a book that it's his most recent book. Um, And actually, it's something that I had received. I picked it up over a year ago, but I had only kind of skimmed it and then uh Brother Ali, who's a previous guest and who's a good friend of mine um he's legally blind, so he mostly re- uh does audible books, audio books, and so he was listening to the Kabir hominsky book, and he knew about Kabir through myself talking about him in, in the podcast, and so he was telling me how much he was really feeling the book and Uh, it was causing him to think about things in new lights and etc so through his recommendation I was like well I should really read that book so I finally um picked it up and read it and actually I listened to the audio book um and the audio book is really nice because it's Kabir narrating it and it's, it's always nice when you you have the narrator uh or the author themselves narrating it so if you have audible you can find it there uh and I'm sure you can find the um the physical copy anywhere, so I highly recommend the book. And you know, you you feel if you get a, uh, if you would like it based on this conversation, I'm sure. Um, I hope you're well. It's good to see you. It's good to see you,
1: Faraka. Yes, I'm well. Alhamdulillah.
0: And are you in Louisville? Yes, I am. I'm sorry I couldn't join you for the unity, uh, Zikr.
1: Well, thank you for trying. And it would have been a nice time. But inshallah, we'll find another time.
0: Inshallah. It was so nice to visit. I have to visit again with you and your wife there. And also with uh, Gray. Inshallah. And also Muhammad Ali's Muqam. Yes. (laughs) Yes. It's
1: amazing. Who would have thought Louisville would... Hey, Louisville. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Damn. Um, mashallah. So, yeah, I mean, thank you for agreeing to to discuss the book. Um, as I mentioned, I, um, <clears throat> alhamdulillah, I read your previous work on uh, The Knowing Heart, and I, I really loved it. And then... It wasn't until I actually had the book Holistic Islam for a number of months, probably almost a year, and it was on my shelf. And I kind of went through it very very, um, briefly, but didn't really dive in until a dear friend of mine, Brother Ali, who's a musician and who's legally blind. Uh, So he listens to audible books, audio books, and he always kind of shares with me what he's listening to and then I share with him what I'm reading and he said uh he had heard about yourself from me actually so he's like this book uh, Holistic Islam by Kabir Helminski do you recommend it and I said yeah I do and then I told you about um you know the the works that I had read from you and just our time together mm-hmm. so he uh, started listening to it and then he was really amazed and moved and he kept, kept uh, giving me updates about what he was finding and so that prompted me then to to actually um, dive into it. Mm. <clears throat> well I'm happy that the audiobook is is being used. And, yeah uh, and it's and it's narrated by you I should add which is nice because you know um, it's a mixed bag with with audio books and it tends to be a nice touch when the on the author the, himself or herself is the one reciting it because then you get it in the voice, you get the subtleties, you get the emphasis, you, there's a lot, you know, as you know, in spoken that, that uh, a, a normal reciter might not pick up on.
1: Yes. I also um, re- would recommend the audio book because it gave me a chance to review what I had written mm-hmm. and to, I think, in reading it to improve it in some ways, because when you're reading the spoken word, um, it's more direct, more real. And it led me to make some small revisions in the text. And uh, so I'm happy for that reason too.
0: Yeah, I feel that also with poetry, I might write something, it may even be written and published, but when I start to recite it, then I suddenly pick up on things. No, this should be changed. This word should be changed. That's right. That's right. So um, today I'd love to speak more in depth about Holistic Islam, about the work. Um, there's a lot in it. And what I really came away with is that this is a book of an individual who has spent many decades on the path, on the Sufi path, uh, as a traveler and also as a, a murshid, as someone who is assisting other travelers, guiding other travelers in, into their higher selves. And particularly someone who has done so through a teacher from the East and has thought deeply about the ways in which this tradition, this 1400 year old tradition, um, can not only survive, but can flourish and thrive in this context. And that is a very um, nuanced discussion. It's not an easy thing to translate. As you know, translating Rumi's poetry into English um, you have to make a lot of word choices. You have to make a, a lot of subtle decisions based not only on the meaning of the author, but based on the psychology of the people uh, in the language that is being translated into. So uh, I really feel like there's a lot in that book that is is very worthwhile for those of us who are not only Muslims or Sufis in the West, but those of us Westerners who have adopted or at least taken on aspects of Eastern Mm traditions and wanting to really implement them in the most beautiful and wise way in our context. So I guess I'll just open with that and (coughs) let you share whatever you'd like.
1: Well, first of all, thank you so much for that introduction and summary, which tells me that Uh, You've gotten the point of the book and you've understood the issues behind the issues. And um, yes, it's true that my experience of Sufism has been on the front lines, so to speak. It's been in the field of applied spirituality and in translating a tradition, not just in words, but in practice. You know, the original meaning in Latin of translation was to <coughs> bear the, the holy relics of one saint, of a saint from one place to another.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So in a sense, we have been bringing the, uh, the holiness and the barakah of Nivlana Rumi, Hazrat and of course, uh, Prophet, peace be upon him, into our culture in a way where people could appreciate this beauty. And those three names I mentioned are completely coherently unified around a revelation and also around the spirit and character of the prophet. There's no greater lover of Prophet Muhammad than Shamsi Tabriz from his own spoken words. And of course, with Mevlana Rumi, he, it speaks for, His work speaks for itself and the beautiful stories he's told about the prophet and the way he refers to him. But what's at the heart of their message is something about what is possible and necessary for a human being. This is about realizing our humanness. And in realizing our humanness through a connection with the divine, which is the most beautiful and meaningful experience a human being can have. Mm-hmm. So I would say that when we look at the revelation and, all, and the message of Prophet Muhammad through the lens of Rumi, for instance, as an example of a, realized being, a, uh, a wali, uh, a friend of God, we see this revelation and we understand this message in its deepest aspect. And we begin to realize the immensity of what's possible for the human being what we're really called to experience and how that experience itself can transform our sense of identity, our sense of, um, well, our consciousness, our character. That transformation is a key word here. And if this something, this something we're calling Islam, if it's not about transformation, of our very sense of ourselves, then it's not really Islam. It becomes uh, some egoistic game of identity um, or self or group promotion, but the transformation of the self that results in the self becoming a servant of Haq a servant of truth, a servant of the real. This is what must have been asked for from the beginning. And of course, we know in many ways it's gotten lost, not completely. Many beautiful qualities have survived in the Muslim ummah among Muslims who are basically good people, who are basically altruistic, hard-working, generous, family-oriented people, but something has been missing, especially in recent times. So where will we look for that missing something? And it's not completely missing because there is a living tradition that has never died. And this is what... I found before I even knew what I was looking for and I found it embodied in some older men and women they were sort of the last the last remnant of the Ottoman age when I met them people in their 80s when I was in my 30s and I experienced the love of God through human beings. I don't think I could have known or grasped the love of God or God's love if I didn't experience it through these people. And I remember one of them said, I was visiting and sitting in his kitchen at his kitchen table, and he slammed his fist down on the table and he said, we do not believe in an abstract God. So there were many lessons about how that divine love is embodied. And when I say divine love, of course, I'm talking about it's not uh, the human love that bargains, uh, that makes a deal. Uh, It is the love that comes directly from a relationship with the unseen, Uh, from a flow from heaven and comes into the world. And Rumi said the greatest love is love with no object. When a human being can slowly mature into that state, your love is something that simply radiates from your being. And it has an effect on your immediate environment. So remember Rumi said once, become the kind of person who, when you walk into a room, good fortune goes to the one who needs it. Yeah, so, you know, we're here to bless each other. We're here to uh, remember God in a very deep sense so that our very nafs, our ego, is not a controlling tyrant you know, driving us this way and that for its satisfactions. But the nafs, which is deeply loved by ruh, by spirit, by Allah, the nafs becomes a servant. And that's why we're here. Um,
0: yeah, uh, mashallah. That's a beautiful. and Thank you for sharing those, those kind of personal reflections of what you got from your teachers. <clears throat> and I also share that, and I think... You know, it's interesting what you said, that this is not an abstract God or an abstract love, but when you see it embodied in a human being, when you see it truly in practice, as the Sufis are wont to say, um, how can you explain honey to one who's never tasted? That it's really about taste. It's about experience. It's about realization. And I think this in some way gets at the heart of what you're getting at is that In the Islamic tradition, you find similar things in other traditions. There's a difference between taqlid and taqqik, between following and realization. Mm -hmm. And within the Sufi teachings, and this is what I heard from my teachers, is that it's good to follow in certain of the the outward actions. Learn from your teachers how to pray, how to fast, how to go about the, the rituals but it's considered actually blameworthy to follow in matters of inward reality. In other words, you can't just say, I know these spiritual realities are true. I know God is one because my teacher said so. Just like you can't say two plus two equals four because my teacher said so. Mm -hmm. If you don't realize in yourself the quantity of two plus the quantity of two equals four experientially. If you haven't realized it and you haven't understood. And um, I bring up, I've brought up on this podcast a number of times. um, I read a a book called American Veda, which talks about Indian spirituality in the West. And I thought there was a lot of interesting parallels. And he talks about the fact that what drove people East for spirituality in the sixties and seventies is that You know, religion fulfills various functions, and he says five functions, and he gives three of them are more outward and two of them are more inward. So there's translation, transmission, uh, and uh, I forget the other one right now of the outward. Transmission, translation, and um, transaction. So these are the outward, right? The stories of old, Um, The rules of how to behave and then also how to understand our lives in this, you know, brief moment that we're here in this cosmos. But then the inward to our transformation and transcendence. And he brings that up to say that the West had more or less lost or at least they'd become so marginalized that very few people were engaging with the transformation and the transcendence aspects of Christianity and Judaism. And so this turning East for spirituality, which of course is uh, through those of your generation, looking in India or looking in the Far East in uh, Buddhism and many, uh, some people, a strand of that coming to the nearer East, right? The Islamic world to Sufism in particular. Mm -hmm. And I hear that as something that you're saying, in that, what happened to Christianity? What happened to Islam? Threaten, uh, or or what happened to Judaism in the West? Ha- threatens to happen to Islam if we don't revive transformation and transcendence. If we don't revive the heart of it, and this is Sufism, and that Sufism can, in a sense, reinfuse and reinvigorate and show people the um. Uh, perennial, in a sense, aspects of this deen and how it applies to each one of us in our journey uh, to our creator.
1: Yes, yes. Um, That's right. And So it brings up a lot of practical questions as to how this can be accomplished. Uh, It's interesting. I've encountered people in Turkey who, for instance, left Islam because they were looking for spirituality and they had to be shown (laughs) that there is spirituality within Islam. And that's in Turkey, which is a country that still has an infusion of, of that sanctity. It's still there in the culture, but monks, the more secular educated classes They thought they had to go east to find spirituality until it could be shown to them that it was right there in their, you know, in the homeland of Islamic spirituality. So for many centuries, there was a beautiful civilization from the Balkans to Bengal and that civilization flourished uh, on the basis of on the one hand, Quran and Hadith, and on the other hand, Mesnavi of Rumi. Those were the three most read books by people. And that there was a, always a parallel tradition, the, the side by side with the masjid were the tekes, dergas, etc. So there was a living tradition of mysticism that may not be for everybody, but it was there. It was there side by side, not challenging the masjid and what, you know, what is done there and, and the uh, functions performed. Um, but for those who made a conscious choice, there was this lifelong education in soul transformation. Um, that's been lost to a great extent, in the 20th century for various reasons. There were political cataclysms. There was the influence of modernism. And more recently, there was the toxicity of Salafism um, that spread its propaganda and created and misrepresented uh, Sufism in so many ways. So I think one thing that can be done or where we can begin is to show that this phenomena that we're calling Sufism or Tasawuf in the original languages that it has a very clear rationale and its basis is Quranic and it's in the most beautiful Hadith and it has a practice, it has a way of life, it has uh, principles for relationship and community building. There's a wealth of knowledge and practice that the Sufi tradition has held, even if complete uh, embodiments of that tradition are extremely rare. In the West, and fairly rare, and even in the East and Middle East, but the knowledge and practice is there to be to be revived, um, and the rationale is um, important to understand. And in addition to what I'm calling the rationale, is an incredible treasure of Sufi memes, of powerful ideas. If we look at the what's being offered by those who have turned Islam into a one-dimensional phenomenon, we see that they have very few ideas. They have lots of prescriptions, they have lots of rules, they have lots of observances, but they have very few transformative ideas. But if we look to Rumi, for instance, and, and other other greats, Ibn Arabi, Ghazali, Atar, Hafiz, etc., etc., we see this incredible richness of, of Sufi memes that really can be shared and brought into the world which transform our intellects and our hearts.
0: Um, yeah, Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of people might uh, wonder, and you do discuss it at the beginning of the book, um, at the term holistic before Islam. And you kind of address that some people that are from the, more, the West, that, uh, you know, part of that kind of holistic movement more generally might say, what could Islam possibly have to do with that? <laughs> because they associate it with subjugation of women and violence, etc. And on the other hand, Muslims uh, may be quick to say, why are you putting an adjective before Islam? Islam is perfect and unchanging. And how could you uh, insinuate something? So I think you've been getting at it. And in the book, you really unfold it. but maybe just for the listeners that haven't read that you could kind of just address quickly though, what you mean by holistic Islam and, um, what is its opposite? What is unholistic Islam? And then maybe why the word holistic uh, you felt at this time in the English language was the adjective that you chose to use. Yes.
1: Well, I relate the word holistic to salim, which means whole, sound, healthy. And Islam is related to salim as much as it is to salam. So, Al al-is- Islam As Salim is holistic Islam. So, it has a linguistic basis. But what does this? What does this really mean? Most of us understand that Islam is not just a religion in the sense of a a set of beliefs and a, a, a code of, of behavior, but that it influences every aspect of our lives uh, in terms of, yes, our relationships, our uh, sense of reality. Um, uh, It is a wholeness in itself in that it touches on every aspect of life, more than most religions do. But there's Something beyond that, and that is that we are multidimensional beings. We are beings who live on this, not just on a physical level, not just on the emotional and intellectual levels, but we have capacities to be conscious on other levels of reality as well. And for starters, Just for starters, there is the level of what we call presence, meaning a self-awareness that encompasses our behavior, our thought, our feelings, and allows us to view ourselves, to view our nafs, to view our egoism, our personality. This higher level of self-awareness, similar to what Buddhists and others call mindfulness, but I would like to call it heartfulness because the heart is also a knowing function. So Sufism or true spirituality, a comprehensive holistic spirituality, must first of all awaken us at this level of presence. And I believe this is what the key practices of Islam are meant to do in, as we stand before God in Salat, we should have a sense of witnessing ourselves and in a sense, being witnessed by Allah. So suddenly a wider field of awareness opens up. Um, The human being can cultivate that awareness by learning to enter a state in which our thoughts, are quieted, our emotions and desires are relatively stilled. And we make an inward journey back through these layers of the psyche to a state of being, which is pure witnessing, pure presence. And when we come to know that aspect of ourselves, which is not just for mystics, it's not just uh, the achievement of some rare individual who's gone off to a cave. This is a realizable state for all of us with a certain guidance and practice. When we come back to that (coughs) uh, root of the root of the self, as Rumi calls it, the quality of our experience changes because we in that state, are receptive to the guidance of Allah in a way that we're not through mere thinking or through the uh, cacophony of our own egoistic emotions. So Sufism is meant to train people through muraqabah, through deep zikrullah, through the refinement of intention, Uh, to connect us to the very core of our being, to the core of our humanness, and through connecting to that core, to actually connect to the subtler levels of reality, to connect to that level on which the divine names, attributes, function, so that we begin to experience uh, al-karim, a Rahman, a-sabur, a-salaam. These are realities that the human being can know and experience deep within our hearts, but not when we're living only at the level of the thinking mind and the random egoistic emotions that are the contents of most people's lives. So now to contrast that, in too many cases, Islam has been reduced to a man-made rather than a divinely revealed religion. Man-made religion in the sense that it has been proposed that we please God the most by following a humanly formulated code of outer behaviors and I would say dogmas that have been formulated by human beings claiming to speak for Allah, derived from the Quran, derived from Hadith, but nevertheless undergoing a transformation Uh, or not a transformation, really a degeneration from the original message so that the beautiful revelatory power of the original message becomes... um, it, it turns into... just a vestige of its former truth. And as an example, for instance, if we really look at the Quran and receive its message directly, we see that it's very much about being in a state of wonder. It's very much about uh, opening the heart to receive and to perceive the signs of God. That spiritual... Its message is a message of spiritual perception, not of rules and demands it is and it is a it is the divine beloved inviting us into a relationship rather than a divine rather than a supernatural policeman and accountant <laughs> uh, that is you know uh tracking us like Big Brother, keeping an account of our every sin and uh, good deed to make some kind of final reckoning. So what, we, what it saddens me to hear repeatedly in so many masjids and in the name of Islam today is a very truncated uh, understanding of the divine revelation, uh, it all gets reduced to reward and punishment. And what, what I experience in most masjids is a message that sort of makes the congregation feel vaguely guilty, vaguely shamed, and... We're told that there are certain things we must do, and let's say those things could be very useful. Prayer, charity, fasting, these things are a support, and they are a system of spiritual training. But when that living relationship to the divine, which is based in love above all, is lost and it becomes a demand, an order rather than an invitation. I believe certain aspects of our mind and nervous system shut shut down and our faculties, the faculties that should be opening up to the divine are numbed. So If we look, I believe if we look at the early history of Islam in the beginning, the best of it, uh, was so powerful because people were magnetized by a love, by uh, a sense of solidarity. And their focus was in experiencing the awesome reality of Allah. And at the same time, looking at their own inner motivations, examining themselves to see where they were sincere and where where we are sincere and where we are not. This was the original core of the message that made it so powerful. But over time, it was reduced to a codification of behaviors and beliefs of second-hand information and second-hand experience that reduced for many the living reality and that was revealed and the revelation that once opened up people's imagination and opened up people's hearts into a vast and beautiful landscape of divine prophets and divine truth showering down upon us became instead, in some cases, a matrix of oppression, uh, both literally and intellectually. So that's what we're dealing with. And part of, let me, I'd like to say one more thing, and and, uh, I want to be forgiven if I mislead Anyone, or if I give the impression that there is anything but love for this tradition and revelation in my heart, um, I don't want to to be, you know, promoting negativity. But Muslims have too often given up their critical faculties and their critical thinking, so that it seems blasphemy to question anything about Islam as it's generally presented to us. And and it has created a a degree of fear in the ummah to even think about some of these things and to question what has been inherited, what has been formulated as sharia, uh, what we have been told by institutional Islam and clerical Islam. And yet the Quran is always encouraging us to use our uncle and encouraging reflection and intelligence, intelligence and reflection need to be applied in common sense needs to be applied. Uh, as we reevaluate and recontextualize what we've inherited from history, from the history of Islam. And that's a big project. And I admit, not everybody has to undertake that project. Um, but we do have common sense. We should know what when our hearts feel constricted by certain things spoken to us in the name of islam we should listen to our hearts When prophet muhammad peace be upon him was asked what is sin he said sin is that which troubles your heart leave it and that applies in many situations so we need more critical thinking at this time what will make that critical thinking um, useful and healthy is when we have the spiritual heart of Islam to some extent realized when we are experiencing the inner reality and beauty of this message. And especially as it's been reflected to us by the awliya, by the the great mystics, the great lovers of God. MashaAllah.
0: Yeah, and I think an important thing to remind ourselves is that what you're saying as far as this degeneration and this loss of the essence of Islam is, uh, and the need to Recontextualize it and reconnect with the heart of it and reinfuse those outward acts with the spirit, as it were, the inward meaning, is not something that new and just Westerners engaging with Islam are doing. But the Prophet himself said that uh, each uh, hundred years there will be a renewer, a reviver that Allah brings forth to revive this thing. And it's really amazing if we think about it because the implications of that is not that Islam itself will be lost. People will have Islam, but they will have lost Islam. They will have lost the inward reality of Islam because it needs to be renewed. It's like a, a ruined house almost that you need to repair. And... This is from the hadith tradition. And one of the analogies that really speaks to me is, you know, as you mentioned, one, you know, the names of Allah, and one of the names of Allah is nur and the light. And one of my favorite allegories and kind of the foundational allegory of Western civilization, in a way, is Plato's Cave allegory. And as you know, as most people know. The essence of the story is there's a group of people born into a cave, spent their entire life at a cave, and all they can see is the shadows on the back of the cave, and they're not even able to turn their heads and look about the cave. And all of a sudden, in this allegory, one man finds himself free of his chains and can stand up and can move around, and he sees it at the back end of the cave that they couldn't see. There is a a light. Hmm. And he realizes that the shadows are actually being cast by this light. And he goes nearer and nearer to the light and it gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And all of a sudden he finds himself blinded by the light, He's stepping into the light. And as his eyes eventually adjust, he realizes that he's left this cave, which he thought was the entire world. And he sees that the world is infinitely more vast and more beautiful than he could have ever imagined with the. Vast skies and oceans and plains, etc. And so after exploring that for a while, he comes back into the cave like we all probably would to tell his people the good news, right? That this isn't all there is. And what Plato says is that at first his people are simply confused and perplexed because they have no reference for the things he's saying because their world is the the shadows. And so he's saying something so foreign foreign to them that it's difficult for them to comprehend. But then he says something that really struck me. He says, but at some point, because he's so um, emphatic and he really wants them to understand, at some point they actually start to hate him because what he's doing is undermining their very conception of reality and their worldview. And that's a very... uh, difficult thing to endure for anyone yes and so for me what i really to bring this back to islam you know of course i heard that allegory when i was in middle school and i remember the day that i learned that. It's one of the only things i remember from seventh grade but um i remember when i became muslim and when i really even just started studying about the world's wisdom traditions more generally in my late teenage years that Okay, the prophets and the saints and the sages and the enlightened ones—they're the ones that have gotten out of the cave, mm-hmm. and they come back into the cave to try to explain and to guide those that are still caught in the shadows, thinking the shadows are all there is. And so, I think what happens is what you know to put that analogy to, or this allegory towards Islam is that the prophet really, you know. T- was out of the cave. And of course, each tradition starts with a mystical experience of its founder. And then he taught a method of how to get out of the cave, or if not to get out of the cave all the way for everyone to understand that this is a cave and that there's a way to get closer to the light of casting the shadow. Mm -hmm. And so there are, that is really the, the essence of the deen. It's holistic, is yes, the outward actions are important yes the rituals are important yes the correct understanding theological understanding of what is the nature of reality what is God in relation to us are all important but they're important so that you put them into practice to awaken and to move towards the light and it seems like what happens is over time and this happens with all religions is that there are a lot of people in the cave that have never been out of the cave and have never met anyone who's been out of the cave, talking about the cave and being out of the cave and using it while they are trapped in the shadows to kind of, uh, as a tool of power and as a tool of manipulation and their own ego, because they haven't themselves be transformed. And I think the last thing I'll mention on this topic is that, uh, you know, it reminds me also of the, the Hadith of Nawafah, this beautiful, beautiful Hadith, which is Sahih Hadith. It's in the uh, collection of Bukhari in which the prophet Muhammad says, and it's actually Hadith Qudsi, so the divine voice speaks in the first person on the tongue of the prophet and says, um, my servant draws near to me by the obligatory actions, by the rights of the religion and then continues to draw near by the supererogatory, by continued devotion, until I love him or her. And when I love him, I become the eye with which he he sees, the ear through which she hears, the foot through which he walks, the hand through which she grasps. And what's amazing about this is uh, many things. But this is a more mystical statement than any later Sufi could have said. I mean, it's actually saying that the divine eye comes to, uh, in a sense, eclipse the individual self of the, the, the servant. And it's through these actions and through these devotions. And so, you know, this is the meaning of praying and fasting and all of these outward actions is, is to transform ourselves. However, like you said, for so many people, the transformational aspect that this is an al- alchemy, this is something that should change something in us, has been lost. And this idea that all God wants from us is. All God wants from us is to fulfill some checklist of do's and don'ts and, you know, naughty or nice and you get in, you're, you're in or you're out based on that. And, and it's unsustainable and it's an insult to the the spirit of the human being. We all know there's something that's not truly what this is all about. Yes. Um, so I really think, you know, because, because just, just like you said, I mean, I remember I was in a Muslim country and I, I performed some poetry and spoke about, Uh, Islam and spiritual path, and afterwards, a a young woman came up to me, a Muslim woman in a Muslim country her whole life, Muslim family, wearing hijab, very uh, sweet and sincere woman, and she said to me, sincerely, she said, I really loved your performance and your talk, but I have a question, because I was confused by something you said, Um, is there spirituality in Islam? Yes. <laughs> and, and I didn't know how to answer. I was just, but unfortunately, she speaks for a, a wide range of people that ask, well, how do we be transformed? And the point is, the whole thing is supposed to be transformational. But if you're around people that maybe are following all the outward letter of the law, but aren't transformed, and in fact, maybe judgmental and egotistical and uh, hard-hearted, it actually... causes you to be repulsed by the very things that are supposed to be transformative and enlightening and softening our hearts.
1: Exactly. You know, this. the image of Plato's cave is a very apt one, and it describes perfectly the reality and the journey. Unfortunately, many people are left bewildered when they hear this or things like it when they hear about these states of unity that mystics talk about that there's between where they are and this other proposed state is a huge gap that they don't know how to fill and it makes this reality seem very distant very unattainable and therefore and something abstract not something that they think they don't have an experience of it. They think it's for a few rare saints aliyah, um, or prophets. So the question is, how, do we, how are we going to fill in that gap? And here's where the Sufi traditions have knowledge and practice. And where that knowledge and practice also, by the way, I think, needs some um, adjustment. It needs some calibration for our current cultures. But let me just try and give you some examples of of the means by which that gap can be fulfilled or bridged. Um, We teach, for instance, in Sufi circles, that when somebody new comes to the circle, they, first they come and they may want to judge what they see. They may think they're in a position to evaluate and judge what they think is going on. But we remind people that much of what happens in a Sufi community and in a Sufi circle, is an occasion for us to observe ourselves and to observe our reactions to what's going on. We're there always to learn about ourselves. So if we feel friction or resistance or judgment, our first obligation is to really begin to observe what's going on within ourselves. Um, It's also, we have, For instance, the ceremonies, community ceremonies of of zikrullah, for instance. When a group of people come together and they join their voices and synchronize their breaths and movement, uh, an energy is generated, uh, an experience is made possible in which people sometimes Often, for the first time, experience a sense of heaven, a sense of unity, a sense of blessing and grace that was hard to attain in just performing the commands of Allah and five daily prayers, etc., which many people do out of fear of going to hell or because they've they've been told that Allah commands this and they've been doing it, you know, faithfully, but without uh, experiencing sweetness in their worship. This was even happening at the time of the prophet, peace be upon him, because he once said to some people, he says, I don't see the sweetness of Salat in you. Uh, So people can miss it. But through some of the rituals that create a resonance Um, the ceremonies of resonance and exaltation um, bring into the community something that any individual might rarely attain or experience, but it's an intimation of heaven. It's a sense of blessing. It's a sense of being loved. (coughs) And that experience itself has a transformative effect on our sense of identity. So sometimes, too, we find people who have studied Islam, have have acquired quite a bit of intellectual knowledge, and all that intellectual knowledge has only um, led to a certain pride and arrogance which they themselves may not recognize because they haven't been in a community situation where, for instance, where a gently and compassionately can hold a mirror to a person and help them to see their own egoism. So people like this who acquire lots of intellectual Information, I won't even call it knowledge, information about the deen, but they haven't seen themselves. They haven't faced themselves in the mirror. And when that religious information adds to our pride and our arrogance, we're moving away from Allah, not toward Allah. So we're like a rose bush that hasn't been pruned a rose bush that's just allowed to grow wild. So this spiritual education that's called for is a pruning of the nafs in the hands of a loving gardener. Everything, if it's not done with love, it won't be effective. But the circles of the Sufis, of the true Sufis, of the best of them, and yes, some Sufi groups do degenerate into cults, and uh, may also include the misuse of power and privilege. These things, of course, can happen. But when it's working right, when the system is working right, when there is sincerity, and above all, where there's love, there's such such an atmosphere of love, such a vibration of love, develops in these communities, that that too is the most powerful transformer, of our egoism. So you have many things that can help in the process. There's self-observation. There's a very uh, fastidious awareness of how does my nafs function? What is it reacting to? Uh, am I looking for attention for myself? Am I looking for approval? Or am I here simply to be defenseless and a servant of the heart? Um, am I able to move back behind my habitual thoughts and feelings into that pure state of, of being, that pure state of witnessing? It's said that Allah is looking for objective witnesses in this world, people who are not biased, people who are not operating from their egos, people who are not claiming, I have the truth, uh, from their, merely from their egoistic intellects, but people who are humble and sincere. So we need to create an educational system. A, we need to create communities that support this kind of sincerity and that do not merely settle just for the acquisition of religious information because no degree of intellectual development, no amount of information necessarily crosses the boundary into the realm of love. And if we don't enter into the domain of love, we're not yet in the domain of Islam. We are not yet with the Deen al haq the Deen al haq which sheds its light on all of religion. And that, that Deen... Is, is a level of, it, it must also embody these higher levels of consciousness that allow us to step outside of our egoistic compulsions, uh, outside of our biases, outside of our defense mechanisms. Uh, so there's a psychology involved to it as well. and there's also the beautiful akhlaq the beautiful virtues exemplified by the prophet his companions and the inheritors of that legacy which are the people who some of them, some we've met some of them as merchants in our own lives we know such people exist we've felt their their radiance their humility, uh, and their pure hearts, and they've been examples for us. So we need to restore the rationale for why a particular form of transformative education is needed, how it is supported by the Quran and by the character of the Prophet, and find really create the forms, the protocols, the situation uh, in our own world that can satisfy this need.
0: Mashallah. Yeah, there's so much you said there that's really beautiful. And um, I think it's so true that especially, I think, in our modern age, where so many people are hyper-rational and in their heads so much. One of the beautiful, beautiful, liberating qualities of Sufism is that it always emphasizes that it, it, it is through the heart. And that this is, you could kind of say, in essence, that Sufism is, of course, people notice the poetry or some of the, the zikers or even the dances, etc., but at it its heart, it is a, a mystical psychology. It's a, it, is a, it is virtue theory. I mean, it's not just theory, but it's in practice. It's mystical virtue theory. It's saying that if you, and it is, as even Imam Ghazali remarked in his time, it is a, a type of science. In other words, you don't, don't take anyone's word for it. But it just like, uh, do the experiment inside of your own being. If you implement this and this and this, you will find this, and Rumi, I think, you know, as usual, more eloquently than anyone else, um, really touches on this you know sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment, being in a sense of awe, and seeing people arguing and debating about God and saying This isn't how a lover talks about his beloved. You're talking about how many centimeters apart the beloved's eyes are. That's not how a lover looks at the beloved's face. What are are we doing here? And so I think this, that also just this emphasis that we are going to be skewed to the extent that our own ego, our own individuated lower self is obscuring the lens through which we see everything. So until we cleanse that, it doesn't matter how much information we get. It's just going to become a tool of that, that ego self. But I wanted to, um, because it really aligned with what something you said, I wanted to read a passage from the book and and just maybe you could, um, unfold that or comment on it because I feel like this is the passage that really stuck out to me the most of the entire book. You said, Without a profound renewal, Islam will suffer the erosion of faith that other religions have suffered in the West, where only a small minority of people attend church and actively affiliate themselves with the religion. I'm not suggesting that Islam needs a reformation such as Christianity experienced. Rather, a a renewal suggests reconnecting with the original moral energy and inspiration of the faith. If Islam is to survive in the West, in other words, if the next generations are not to be lost to the worldliness of global consumerism and popular culture, we will need active centers for the spiritual life, not mosques that are merely places of immigrant nostalgia. In other words, we are in need of something like an institute of applied spirituality. We must apply the deepest wisdom of Islam to contemporary problems. We need to forge cooperation between spiritual practitioners, scholars, social activists, popular writers, filmmakers, and musicians. The foundation for it all must include the knowledge of heart purification and self-transformation. We need a a form of continuing education in our communities that can encourage and teach the inner reality of Islam through spiritual practice. One way this continuing education can be accomplished is through retreat programs that take people out of the manic stream of their lives optimally including some contact with the beauty and peace of nature. In the contemporary world so full of distractions and challenges to our humanness, our spiritual sanity requires a concerted effort to strip away the veils of social conditioning, which include the religion of consumerism, the idolatries of pop culture, and the heedlessness of social ambitions. It also requires an appreciation for the type of spiritual practice known as meditative awareness, marakabha, that reawakens our receptivity to God's presence through inner stillness uh, and silence. A Muslim is not someone who dresses a certain way or claims a Muslim identity. A Muslim is someone who lives in a state of presence and from that state gains a perspective on their ego. With that perspective on the self, one is liberated from the slavery of ego's demands little by little, the nafs is transformed.
1: Yeah, the reason why I languaged it that way, an in institute of applied spirituality, it sounds a little bit clinical to my ear right now as I think about the, how, in fact, the, the most beautiful Sufi situations I've known are more like families than institutes. <laughs> but the reason why I put it in that kind of language is because I'm trying to awaken um, Muslims in the West to the need to do something to create something that will endure, something that uh, you know, where people can begin to get this education and experience these these states that we're talking about, and I thought this was a language that would you know make sense in terms of our society. Why is it that we have really no Muslim retreat centers? Uh, you know. Why is it that we, you know, we, where we don't have the institutions that could begin to be the container for a sharing of this practical information, not necessarily even under the name of one particular lineage, but where a variety of Sufi lineages can collaborate and share what they have, and as where we can create a sort of big tent for or a greenhouse for the flourishing uh, of uh, this education. So um, something is needed to revive and train and educate more souls in the rationale behind Sufism, in the principles, uh, and to offer Regularly, an experience of what this work can be like. And I'll also add to that the idea that the Sufi orders in the West so far have remained rather isolated from each other. And that isolation may not be the, the ideal state, that we may need to recognize a common cause. And at certain times, at least to have events that can unite us, that can uh, help us to appreciate each other and to see the collective beauty in all of its many forms and, and to respect the beauty of these different different lineages that originally come from different cultures but are beginning to be uh, uh, find their home in this culture and in world culture so you know we're back to this idea of this is a practical education there is a spiritual psychology there is a there is a precise knowledge underlying for instance the works of rumi of this incredible poetry it it's not just some uh, you know, vague, mixed, uh, entangled uh, cry of ecstasy and love <laughs> that underneath it is a very precise knowledge of what is possible for a human being and what are the means and stages of this transformation. So, uh, we can pray for that. We can ask Allah's help. And we can also spread the word within this society that Islam has to be more than identity. It has, to be, it has to be realization and not just, you know, I was born Muslim in such and such a country and I want to preserve my ethnic and community identity and that's what this mosque is going to do. That's what I see so often around America is immigrant mosques. Are they attracting uh, converts? Not much. And uh, even the converts often are kind of come in in a somewhat bewildered state and often leave after not finding the spirituality they're looking for. Um, So, and many of our websites and the publications and attempts to create magazines in the name of Islam have only furthered that sense of Islam as an identity. And we have to stand up for identity and we have to defend how we dress. And we have to, you know, have things like, we can have Muslim country singers, we can have Muslim recipes, we can have... (laughs) Uh, We can put a a Muslim label and we're we're fulfilling our deen. No. (laughs) That's all at the most superficial level. And what we need are people who are living, embodying the realization that we're living in the presence of Allah and that we need to remember this presence. And in remembering it, we will radiate it. And it will transform our character. And it will, when presented to other people with the proper rationale, it will be clear that it makes good sense and that it offers an understanding of the human being that is miraculous and beautiful. You know, there's a book going around now called Homo Deus, Uh, and Sapiens. A lot of people are reading it, including some of my Muslim and Sufi friends. Well, it's kind of interesting. It brings together some interesting information. But uh, the author's conception of the human being is still extremely limited, extremely materialistic. The notion of homo deus, which means God-man, his idea of what this means is that we can become gods, plural. We can become enhanced human beings with, with superpowers as never before. But it's completely missing the subject of transformation and, and moral beautification. It's, it's become, um, you know, a technologized version of humanness a human hybrid now if we go in that direction if we if if spiritual people can't demonstrate to the world that a human being is only becomes fully human through this conscious awareness of our need for the divine and divine grace and divine guidance uh, we will become robots we will become uh yes we will we will become the technology and our humanists will dwindle Um, so we are reaching a critical situation and i believe that islam fundamentally has the principles has the essential truth that must be remembered and i'll go a step further and say that I think we can see Islam as an emergent phenomenon, as something that is on a trajectory toward fulfilling itself. Um, That there were certain principles that were exemplified during the life of the prophet, peace be upon him. There are certain principles that are uh, revealed in the Quran, and these can guide us into the future as those principles become realized at new stages of cultural development. Because if we go back and look at the level of cultural development, at the time of the prophet in Arabia, you know, people were chopping each other's heads off and there were lots of things going on that are very different from what we accept as normative today. We're at a different level of cultural development and we have to apply uh, the truths of Islam, the din al-Haqq, to our own level of cultural development so it can guide our cultural development in a truly human, that is, spiritual direction.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, like you basically are saying, it is a very nuanced, it actually takes a great mastery to, really it takes a deep understanding of the tradition as well as of the transformation. It takes a tradition of the text and the context to be able to do that translation work. And so on some level, I actually sympathize with those that are more formalist And this is what we've received and we want to protect it and any change to the form we're afraid of and it, it seems like it's watering it down or it's changing it i sympathize on some level however you know and that's one of the beauties of not only studying the tradition but traveling into the muslim world and not just one country but to travel all over and you see the way that this The universal principles of Islam manifest themselves in different countries, in different cultural contexts. Um, And as far as the point about, you know, immigrant mosques as places of cultural nostalgia, as you put it, I think that's a really profound thing. and something that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, And I think to to take another community's analogy, which is a bit helpful uh, to look at our own, Um, I have um, as I have a lot of friends in the Buddhist American community and one of them mentioned to me this fact that that particularly in the Bay Area but you see this phenomenon all over uh, the West is that you have a basically complete separation between the Buddhists that come from the East with their traditions from China or other places Mm -hmm. and the converts to Buddhism Mm -hmm. so within the the Far East Buddhism is kind of two classes. You have the monks and you have the lay people. And the monks, at least theoretically, they're the ones engaging in the actual practice of the Buddha, the meditation and the mindfulness and attempting to awaken um, in this life. Whereas, as my friend who's a Buddhist teacher put it, for the most part, the the vast majority of people in these uh, Buddhist cultures For them, it's been kind of reduced to superstition. Mm -hmm. So they they may have a, a statue in their home, they may go to the monastery to the monks to pray when they're having a baby or getting married or things like that, but they're not actually engaging in a real way with the transformative aspect of the tradition, it's very outward. And he mentions that what happens is that in Buddhism in the West is... The type of people drawn to buddhism and i think largely this is because they're the ones not satisfied with outward forms of untransformational christianity or judaism they're drawn to the more contemplative inward uh, alchemical if you will transformative uh, and transcendent aspects of the tradition and so what happens is you it it basically forms a third category so the monks that they often study with if they go to the east or that they bring to learn with the monks the buddhist monks from the east realize these westerners have formed a third category they're not becoming monks by and large but they're also not exactly lay people they're very serious about the method of transformation and so there's something in between and also you know the the Buddhist um, temples of the immigrants, that they're, they're temples and they look just like back home, feel like back home. They have the same incense and the same foods that they serve and the same uh, ceremonies and rituals. Whereas the Western Buddhist converts, they create meditation centers, which can be in warehouses or look like a third wave cafe or something like that. But it's really about the actual method. Right. And there's almost no inter, uh, exchange or overlap between those communities. And I've thought about this a lot and I'm curious what you have to say, but I think a lot of this has to do because these Buddhist um, teachers from the West, Westerners, often they've really studied the tradition. They've studied with the great masters of the East. They, you know, they're from legitimate lineages. And what's interesting is when you have a legitimate master who's studied in the tradition, they're steeped usually in the principles and see how this is a universal way and how it can be applied to different cultural contexts and how there's you know thawabit there's the firm principles that are unchangeable and then there's those things which can be adapted to different cultural contexts and so i think for those that are you know whether it's through their spiritual discipline or intellectual learning they understand the principles of a tradition they're able to articulate it to those converts or seekers or Westerners in a way that says, okay, this is the essence and you, you know, you can adapt this, no problem. Whereas the, the average Buddhist who's not really unlearned, uh, not really learned in their tradition who comes from China or some other place or Thailand, they associate anything that differs from their cultural experience of Buddhism as alien and as wrong actually, because they haven't, Learn to distinguish between culture and religion as such and a very similar phenomena of course happens within muslim cultures and to give like a very small but funny example recently i went to a masjid very large wealthy masjid um that happens to be predominantly pakistani and one of the elders came to me after juma and he said you know basically said nice to meet you salam why do you have long hair? I know that's part of your culture before Islam, but you've been Muslim a long time. Why do you maintain that hair? You know, And essentially he was saying that Islam is supposed to, you know, purify your culture and you're, you're Muslim now. And I tried to explain to him very gently, um, you know, what long hair actually means to me. And this is a whole nother context, almost like another podcast we'd need to do. but long hair represents something in our culture as far as counterculture, counter-establishment. Traditionally, it indicates all these things to our own people. But anyway, there's a whole long conversation there. But what happened was, and it was hard to explain to him, but what I realized is he was saying to me, look, Islam, your culture is not supposed to get in the way of you being muslim and following the prophet etc but what was ironic about that particular example is that what he doesn't he didn't know even though he's been muslim his whole life and from a tradition has been muslim hundreds of years is that the prophet muhammad and many of his companions had long hair right <laughs> if you study the Shema, the descriptions of the Prophet, his hair was to his shoulders and he would braid his hair sometimes, etc. So actually, what he was saying about me is actually a mirror to himself, that his contemporary Pakistani culture right. is anti-Islamic in a sense. It's against the Sunnah of the Prophet because they, in their modern culture, which they just assume is Islam, long hair is feminine, for instance. It's for women. Or it's it represents um those who are rogues or who are irreligious or who are whatever it is and yeah. so what's ironic is that that is when culture has trumped religion but he sees it, it, it he's reflecting it at me when in reality it's his culture and my friend who happens to be the imam there now who's hired there who's an american he mentioned afterwards he said the reason he asked that is because a lot of the young Pakistani boys uh, are growing their hair long because it's fashionable and it's hip and they're, you know, American kids growing up here. And so the elders are really outraged. And so when they see you there with that, they, they see that you see, you see <laughs> but what's what's ironic. And this is what I'll close with because I'm being a bit long winded here, but it's a really interesting topic, but it's not only the, the converts that don't feel not even welcome, but that the, the, these immigrant mosques weren't created for us and our culture. Um, but it's actually the children of the immigrants, <laughs> immigrants that feel unwelcome there, that this isn't for them. And they are not, you know, and, and, and it's because these spaces are created to feel like back home and to remember, like to remind one of back home. But for the, their children, th- there is no back home. This is the cultural context that they are from and that they are in. So I agree. And I think if there's a Bosnian mosque and a Pakistani mosque and a Palestinian mosque and a Somali mosque all in the same neighborhood or all in the same city, people won't be outraged. They say, well, they're from different cultural contexts. That's fine. But if we created a American mosque that is reflective of the beauty of the tradition and the beauty of the cultures that people are bringing, but is also honoring what is best of the West, what is best of our cultures and what I would emphasize are countercultures, because I think that's what makes America so amazing, is that there's these profound streams of counterculture, of critique, of militarism, of empire, of racism, and that is very open to the world's wisdom traditions and the Eastern traditions, et cetera. That's what forms us as those that come into Islam, whether it be African-Americans or European-Americans. We're formed by those countercultures, mostly. So anyway, I know these are a lot of ideas and there's a lot of ways we could go with those. But I really think that I've been thinking a lot about what is it going to mean for us to create centers of spirituality or mosques? that really represent this land and the seekers and the, the, the spiritual path of the people of this land.
1: Absolutely. It's um, a great creative possibility, isn't it? You sense the, you know, the, the beauty that could be um, created. And um, we get excited about that. Because uh, we feel that we feel this incredible truth and beauty, and beauty is a divine attribute. It is Allah is beautiful and loves the beautiful, um, and are so many of the manifestations of Islam today are just not that beautiful and not that creative. If Allah is the is the creator then uh, spirituality should be should be creative and should express that beautiful creativity, which it has done at certain times in history. And it's usually come from a core of a few realized Sufis who have created, uh, you know, the highest cultures of Turkey and uh, South Asia and even West Africa, uh, North Africa, you know, uh, Sufism, the mystical understanding of Islam has been a civilization builder and creating uh, spawning uh, great civilizational attainments and and cultures. So yeah, and yet it, the same phenomenon can become a matrix of oppression. Can become the enemy of imagination. There are some people who say imagination is haram. I've actually read that <laughs> in uh, certain Islamic publications. Imagination is haram, um, and yet we can do nothing. We cannot grow spiritually without the right kind of imagination. If we can, and if we cannot imagine the character of the Prophet, if we cannot imagine, uh, you know, the the. The beauty of heaven, of the heavenly attribute. Um, that's the only way we can channel them into existence. And Islam is about forming a bridge between heaven and earth, between the unseen and the seen. And that's what the human being is here for. The human being is the threshold between these two realms. And this is another example of the beautiful, you know, metaphysical psychological understanding that the tradition offers. There are ideas here that I will say, having been a student of Buddhism and Hinduism in my youth, having been raised as a Catholic, knowing experientially and intellectually a fair amount about the world's sacred traditions, the reason why I landed where I did, uh, you know, on the foundation of Islamic Sufism, is because it offers to us the most comprehensive, integrated uh, uh, possibilities for spiritual realization. That there is a, a completeness, a comprehensiveness to this path that is unmatched. And I say that with enormous respect for Buddhism, and the mystical uh, traditions and other faiths. But when you, having surveyed them personally, I arrived at the conclusion uh, since I was free to choose, we are free to choose in this culture. Another nice aspect about our counterculture and our culture we're free to choose our lifestyle, our path, our religion. And having made that choice, uh, it's because I see the potential within the memes of Sufism, within the metaphysics of Islam, and with the revelation that is the Quran, when it's understood directly and not through the medium of other uh, you know, human formulations. This is, I find that there's a difference between what the Quran says and what many people say about the Quran, just as there's a difference between Jesus and what many people say about Jesus. And it's been human constructs around Jesus that created false religions, if I may say so. And likewise, it's human formulations that can turn Islam itself into a false man-made religion. You know, there's incredible... I have certain favorite ayahs that I'd like to, to kind of keep Uh, at hand and um, one of them uh, says um, say have you and we're talking here Surah Yunus 59 to 60 have you ever considered all the means of sustenance which God has bestowed upon you from on high and which you thereupon divide into haram and halal say say has God given you permission, or do you perchance attribute your own guesswork to God? It's a warning, <laughs> you know. And um, yeah, I mean, we find the remedies for the, all the pathologies of religion right in the Quran itself. It is really a guidebook, and, and uh, uh, for maintaining what I'll call the religion of truth. Um, but I find many of the most important ayahs I've never heard mentioned in any masjid and I've never heard, rarely heard people even acknowledge them. Another great one is that that I love is that and another problematic area to be talked about sometime is the pathetic situation of women in Islam, in official Islam. And yet we have the ayat that says, the faithful men and women are aulia for each other, which means friends, supporters, defenders. You know, we have a, a, a incredible possibility of an incredible relationship between men and women. But when I go even to my local moderate mosque, um, you know, the women are entering by a side door and they're going upstairs and they're, they're dressed like they would never dress. And I don't care how they dress, God bless them. But, uh, we create a schizophrenic situation where what's happening in the mosque has no relationship to our society. Lots of work to be
0: done. Yeah, Yeah, no, it's true. And, uh, you know like you said you've been thinking about these things um, deeply for many generations and i think you know these people that are that have been thinking about it and and i think another really interesting element of yourself is also you know you have a master's in psychology so you're you're thinking about human psychology and particularly westerners and you know just the western mind and the western psyche and how this tradition, how this dean can help and can heal and can best be implemented. And that is, uh, again, a a conversation of so much nuance. Um, So yeah, I mean, you've been very generous with your time and like we've kind of alluded to, many of these threads could be unpacked at length and hopefully we'll have uh, subsequent chances to do so, inshallah. But uh, just in closing, I do want to, Uh, ask you to maybe share the links or websites or any ways that people can follow up on your work or your writings or your website or your retreats um, and and people can kind of follow your work and stay in in touch with what you're doing thank you Barack. i appreciate that well
1: our most important website is sufism.org that's easy to remember Uh, We have another website for another project called the BarakaInstitute.org, B-A-R-A-K-A Institute.org, which was an outreach program. We used to do events. We haven't done events for a few years. We were hoping to, we did create a sort of big tent to welcome some of the best spiritual teachers we knew of in Sufism. And so there's that website. And then there's also Threshold Society on Facebook, which is a good source. And I would recommend, um, well, my book Living Presence, the first book that I wrote, which is now in a new 25th anniversary edition and is being translated or has been translated into between eight and 10 languages. Um, so that's a good text on the subject of presence, and it's it's the most universal of the books that I've written. And then the Knowing Heart is a, a useful book about the uh, how the essence of classical Sufism, what it is, and how it might be translated into our culture. Uh, and then you know about holistic Islam. And then there are other many uh, translations of Rumi, and I'll mention especially uh, the Pocket Rumi and recent Rumi Day Book and another book called Love's Ripening. Those are three of our more recent translations of of Madlana Rumi. So um, that's it for the moment. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for this conversation i enjoy it and i appreciate where we meet and your understanding of what we're trying to achieve and we support you and what you're trying to achieve as well Um, may the beauty creativity love humility generosity and altruism of
0: our path grow and be embodied I mean,